one of the things that we were talking about with the Sermon on the Mount was that the main issue that Jesus has before us is radical deconstruction. He is trying to get us to step outside of everything that we think we know the way the world works, the way we work, who we think we are. Because if we can't do that, we will never be able to get where he's trying to take us. And so this is his main mission. And if you analyze his teaching, it's what he's always doing. You ask him a question, he just hits you with another question. He hits you with a story. He hits you with anything that is going to break your train of thought because he knows that's your blockage. The way that we think and how we think about what we think is the issue to be able to step outside of that entrenched way of understanding life and ourselves is what he's trying to get us to do because it's then in that naked space where everything is stripped away that we meet our God in a way that will impact us, that will change us, that will let us know that we are the beloved, that we can relax even as everything is going crazy around us because he's there. And one of the things that we also talked about was this fixation that we have with accomplishment and doing things and, and trying to earn our place either in God's favor or in society or, or just stave off the fear of death that we all have. And I wanted to kind of tap into that line of thinking and see if we can even put a few more tacks down on that concept. And if we can start there, I think, with this fixation that we have on certainty and control and accomplishment and doing and all those things, then I think we can start to move into <clears throat> the space that Jesus has for us. In 1205, 1205, long time ago, 800 years ago, um, Francis of Assisi had a vision. And he had already had a series of redefining moments in his life to that point, which was bringing him closer and closer to a new understanding of God and, and a conversion moment. He was uh, fighting in a war. He was injured. He was taken prisoner of war. He fell deathly ill, almost died. Um, then he came to realize that his father's wealth and the wealth of his family was a misdirection, and he renounced his, his uh, father's wealth and renounced his name. You know, he was Pietro Bernardone, who was uh, his uh, given name, but his uh, nickname was Francesco because he loved everything French and, and everything minstrelly. That was his, his bent. And uh, so he comes to us as Francis of Assisi. But it was a... It was a progress. It was a process for him to get up to the point where now he's spending time in the, in the woods. He's spending time in nature. He's trying to find himself. He's spending time in all the little chapels that are outside the walled city of Assisi. And he's at the chapel of San Damiano in 1205. And he's kneeling before the, the crucifix there, which was an icon, a, a painting on wood. And as he's praying... The face, Jesus' face looks at him, that would be strange, huh? And says, you know, Francesco, repair, rebuild my church, or my house, as it's sometimes translated, because you can see it's falling into ruin. So he hears this from the Lord. And the first thing that he does in the midst of the series of defining worldview-shattering ego-shattering moments and experiences that he's been having 
here in the midst of another one, another worldview-shattering moment, the first thing that he wants to do is to jump into action. That's what we typically always want to do, right? And so he hears the Lord, but he hears it literally. Rebuild my church. Rebuild my house. It's falling into ruin. Well, he's sitting in the chapel of San Damiano, which is just a little teeny thing, but it's falling apart. There's holes in the roof. The walls are crumbling. And so he starts repairing the church stone by stone and, and um, thatch by thatch on the roof. He's trying to rebuild the church. He moves right back into that ego place. He moves right back into the accomplishment trap, right? The need to do something is so overwhelming when he has an experience like this. How does he follow this voice? Because Francis, even at that point in his life, was not ready to see that it's not what he could do. It's not what he could accomplish that would rebuild the church, rebuild the house. It was who he was becoming that was going to do that work. When Francis's transformation is full-blown and complete, his humility, his poverty, self-induced poverty, his sense of humor, his connection is what reminded the institutional church who Jesus really was and what the church was supposed to reflect. It was this little man. He called himself the jongleur de Dieu, which means God's clown, God's juggler, because that's the way he saw himself, just as this insignificant person. But he was a huge force while he lived because of who he was, not because of what he did. Now, we all do this. We can't just put this on Francis. When we're confronted with an ego-shattering or a worldview-shattering experience, something that really hits us, really just challenges everything that we think we know, we're compelled to do something. We always want to do something. There must be something that we can do, right? Well, Marion just a few minutes ago alluded to this last week. And we had this terrible school shooting in Uvalde on Tuesday. I want to talk about a worldview-shattering event. Everybody's been talking about this. I've had so many conversations about this. Our Tuesday night conversations revolved around that. You know, how are we supposed to react to something like this? What are we supposed to do? How do we go through life faced with these kinds of things that we can barely comprehend? We can't figure out how they even relate to the world as we're trying to see it through the eyes of faith. How does this all compute? What's going on? And most importantly, what do we do? What do we do about it? As I was driving, I can't remember, it was, I think it was Wednesday, I was driving and I was listening to the radio and of course everybody's talking about the, the shooting on the radio. But this one announcer come, uh, pipes up and he says, you know, I wish everybody would just take a day, maybe two days, and just stop. And just be human, and just mourn, and just support. Before we run into our corners and start spouting everything we think we need to do and all the agendas that we have prepared and, and pre-approved, he said, just, just take a moment. I wish everybody could just do that. And I really resonated with that, you know, because we know something has to be done about this and about so many things in our personal lives, in our country, in our world, in our faith, in our church. 
and we're compelled to want to do something. And right now, everybody's fighting, right? Everybody's fighting about, in terms of the school shooting, about gun control, about police protection, about you know, police involvement at all. Um, racial inequality has been pulled out. And I don't know that this is adding to the solution, whatever solution there may be. But if we can be reminded that before we do something, before we try to do something, that we need a breath, we need to take a breath to simply reaffirm our being, reaffirm who we are as human beings, as traumatized human beings. Because until we can step outside just mere doing and mere accomplishment, then what we end up doing is going to be meaningless, or it will miss the primary meaning that we're here to address in life. Now, Francis broke through mere accomplishment. He broke through mere doing to be able to remind the church what it had missed, to remind the church what it was no longer being with just his person, with just who he was. Who he was reminded the church that all that it had accomplished in 1,200 years, all that it had amassed, all the power, all the wealth, was meaningless because it missed Jesus' meaning. It missed Jesus' purpose. He did that just with who he was. Now, why are we all here this morning? Why are we all here at the effect? What is it that we're really doing? We're here, I believe, because I know some of your stories and most of you know mine. We're here because we have experienced a lack of meaning in our church, in our lives, in our faith, in our politics, in whatever. But there was a lack. There was something that was worldview shattering enough for us, ego shattering enough for us, that we felt we couldn't go on that path anymore and we had to switch courses. We had to move. We were compelled to do something. And it's so interesting that just this week, I follow Richard Rohr's daily meditations, and I know several of you do. Just this week, he was talking about basically the same thing. You know, when we look at our church, when we look at our faith, when we look at our world around us, and we see the things that we see, you know, what do we do? I, I want to read you um, from Sundays, last Sundays. And he writes, our religion is not working well. Suffering, fear, violence, injustice, greed, and meaninglessness still abound. This is not even close to the reign of God that Jesus taught. And we must be frank. In their behavior and impact upon the world, Christians are not much different than other people. Many Christians are not highly transformed people. Instead, they tend to reflect their own culture more than they operate as any kind of leaven or a catalyst for change within it. I speak especially of American Christians because I am one, but if you're from another country, look at the Christians where you live and see if it's the same is true there. Let's be honest. Religion has probably never had such a bad name. Christianity is now seen as irrelevant by some, toxic by many, and often as a large part of the problem rather than any kind of solution. Some of us are almost embarrassed to say we are Christian because of the negative images that word conjures in others' minds. 
Young people are especially turned off by how judgmental, exclusionary, impractical, and ineffective Christian culture seems to be. Most Christians have not been taught how to plug into the mind of Christ. Thus, they often reflect the common mind of power, greed, and war instead. The dualistic mind reads reality in simple binaries, good and bad, right and wrong, and thinks itself smart because it chooses one side or the other. This is getting us nowhere. That's the experience that so many Christians are having. I would imagine that's the experience many of us had to try to move into a place that is trying to look at gospel, Jesus, faith from a different perspective. So that's the experience. That's the indictment, right? Now, what do we do about it? Where do we go with this? Like Uvalde, it demands a response, but what should that response be? What do we do? Well, many have left the church. There are the nuns and the duns, right? That's N-O-N-E-S. The nuns and the duns, you know. They're, they're, they're just having none of it anymore. They're done with religion. They still consider themselves spiritual, but they're not a part of any institutional church. You know, some of them have actually gone to the other extreme where they're actually toxic. You know, in, in ter- well, they see the institutional church as toxic, so they are now opposed to it. They're working against it. Some have declared themselves to be atheist or agnostic, but, the, but there's this, this you know, virulent opposition in them. Chips on their shoulder, just half a foot wide. You know, try talking to them. Others have gone to other religions and other churches and so on and so forth. That's one response that we can have. That's several responses we can have. But are there any others? I've been talking lately and reminding, I don't know why he keeps coming to mind, but Emery Tang, the Franciscan priest that I've told you about many times, um, when I was going through my ego-shattering experiences 30 years ago and practically living up at Sarah Retreat, um, befriending him and him taking the time to talk to me, you know, it's so weird to think that I was the kid back then, you know, I was a 33-year-old coming and trying to figure this stuff out. But I remember the more I got to know him and as I started to understand how different was his theology, how different was his take uh, on his faith, uh, at one point I finally asked him, I said, you are so outside of mainstream Catholicism. How do you do this? You know, why, don't, why don't you just leave the church? And he just laughed. And he said, I've been a priest for 50 years. I'm going to die a priest. That... The laugh and what he said were his way of just letting me know that he was still completely comfortable in his church. As much as he saw it dysfunctional, as much as he was frustrated, as much as he was impatient, you know, he told me that he couldn't wait to be relieved of his position as the director of Sarah Retreat because he was seeing the same people year by year and he just wanted to break out. He wanted to be able to get with young people again because he said those are the ones that have the possibility of change. Those are the ones who are still looking for something new and he wanted to be a part of that change. So with his impatience even, with his frustration, he still loved the church and he loved his role within the church. He loved his vocation. He wasn't going anywhere. And that really struck me, that he could stand so far out of the what everything I had been taught about being a Catholic 
and yet still feel comfortable within it and see himself as a force within it. He had that Francis thing. That thing that you can't put your finger on. But I knew it the first time I met him, and it's why I kept coming back, because he had something that I couldn't define, but I knew that I needed. He had that. And he was making a difference, even there, in that more institutional space. And he did, shortly after, was relieved and of his position, and he was able to travel to schools and to different things. And he was a photographer and a poet and all these different... He, he had his impact. And then I read the next, a couple of days later, I read another one of uh, Rohr's meditation. This time it was Brian McLaren who was writing it. But listen to what he says. Over the decades, Brian McLaren has had many conversations with faithful Christians who are also disillusioned by church and religion. After one evening spent in the company of two Roman Catholic sisters who have stayed in service to the church for over 50 years, McLaren reflected. There are more than two options. I don't have to choose between staying Christian compliantly or leaving Christianity defiantly. I can stay defiantly. I like that. I can stay defiantly. Wow. Like Sister Anne and Sister Jean, I can intentionally, consciously, resolutely refuse to leave. And with equal intention and resolution, I can refuse to comply with the status quo. I can occupy Christianity with a different way of being Christian. And when I say defiantly, I don't mean ungraciously. This is such an important point. Sisters Anne and Jean radiate such gentleness and inner calm that accusations of being ungracious simply don't stick. No, with firm yet gracious defiance, they will keep speaking their truths and will continue doing so from the inside as long as they can. See, there it is. It's right there. That's the spirit I'm talking about. That's the spirit of Francis of Assisi. That's the spirit of Emery Tang. The spirit of simply being who they are first. Being who they are. Decent, humble, connected human beings. That's their crowning accomplishment. That's what they have accomplished in life. And any other accomplishment, whatever they do from there, is only going to be meaningful in the light of that first accomplishment. It's going to flow out of that first accomplishment. And it's going to be integrated with their personhood. It can't be separated from that. Because that's who they have become. That's who they now are. So how did two Catholic nuns, Father Tang, a Franciscan priest, Francis of Assisi, how did Jesus get to the point that they could live with dysfunction without becoming dysfunctional. You know, Jesus never left Judaism. He stood up against it. He spoke truth to power. He dressed down the Pharisees and the scribes and the authorities like nobody's business, but he never left it. And he defined his mission as being within it. I am here for the lost sheep of Israel. And he never left he wanted to transform it from within. That was his task. That was his mission. 
did he, how did all these people learn to live with dysfunction without becoming dysfunctional? To live in the presence of evil and remain decent human beings. How did they remain hopeful, energized, and humorous even when they couldn't accomplish change that they were setting out to accomplish? Jesus didn't change Judaism in his lifetime. He certainly didn't change the Roman world. Francis, Emery Tang, these two nuns, Catholicism is basically the same as it's always been with some changes, but they didn't make substantive changes in the macro, right? How did they remain hopeful? How did they keep that thing that we're talking about that is so arresting and attractive to those who are paying attention in the face of what could be just overwhelming despair? Well, I guarantee you that they had a series of Ecclesiastes moments. I want to call them Ecclesiastes moments, shattering moments, moments that shattered their view of things. And not just one, but a series of these. Francis had a series of them, and I guarantee you every other one did as well. And these events, these Ecclesiastes moments, showed them the meaninglessness of this kind of accomplishment, of this kind of doing without first having accomplished simple being, which is why we're really here. You know, we're all obsessed with accomplishment. We are as a culture, and most of us are as as individuals. However much we may give a head nod to simply being, doing is really where we live. Why? Well, basically, human beings and all of us are sort of insecure animals, aren't we? I mean, just scratch us just a little bit, and you'll see how insecure and how fearful we really are. We fear death. We fear being forgotten. We fear going into some kind of ignominious or just oblivion. And so accomplishment at least equals some kind of control in our minds. gives us an illusion of something that we can do, something that we can handle and hang on to. I always think of uh, Marlon Brando, right? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of the bum which I am. You know, that idea that we've just had the right circumstances, the right opportunity, you know, this and that. We could have been somebody. We could hold on to something certain that we hope is going to stave off the fear. If we just accomplish enough, we'll be remembered. Somehow we'll be immortal if we're remembered. I'm reminded of... uh, the Iliad, and I know all of you aren't necessarily literary eggheads like I am, but if you read the Iliad, the story of the Trojan War, you know something about Achilles, right? The greatest Greek warrior who was actually born of a you know, semi, he was semi-god, um, born of a, of a naiad, which was one of the sea nymphs. And, and at one point she um, dips him in the river Styx, holds him by his heel, as the tradition goes, to, to make him invulnerable. So the only thing, he eventually gets killed by being shot in the heel by a poison arrow, but he is the greatest warrior. And as he is leaving for Troy, his mother, his mother you know, comes to him and gives him a prophecy. And she tells him this, if you stay in Larissa, that was their hometown, you will find peace. You will find a wonderful woman, and you will have sons and daughters who will have children. 
and they will all love you and remember your name. But when your children are dead and their children after them, your name will be forgotten. If you go to Troy, glory will be yours. They will write stories about your victories for thousands of years, and the world will remember your name. But if you go to Troy, you will never come back. For your glory walks hand in hand with your doom, and I shall never see you again. This so much is our choice. Spiritually, it really is our choice in many ways. Jesus says, what does it profit you to gain the whole world and lose your life in the process? This is sort of the choice that we have sometimes. And Achilles chose glory, right? Good thing, because there wouldn't have been a story otherwise. But Achilles chose glory. He chose to be remembered. It's not always an either-or situation, though. It's both and. But in finding that balance, we need to ask ourselves something. Is accomplishment that lives beyond our particular generation more important than how we live within it. The experience that we have of life. Which is more important? How can they work together? Achilles is remembered. We're talking about him right now. 3,000 years and counting, right? But did he ever find his Ecclesiastes moments? Did he ever become free of the need to accomplish and be remembered, which is born out of fear? Did he ever get that? Now, what's this Ecclesiastes moment that I keep talking about? Well, you all know about the book of Ecclesiastes, I hope. that Traditionally, it was written by Solomon, the son of David, who is probably the, the greatest king of the unified monarchy. He was handed a unified mar- monarchy by his father, David, probably right around the first millennium, 1000 BCE. And he took that kingdom and grew it tremendously. It became fabulously wealthy and, uh, and as far flung as uh, Israel ever was. At the end of his life, though, he looks back on everything that he has accomplished. And he's seeing things very differently than he did as a child, as he was growing up, as he was handed the monarchy himself. And even though he was a cut above some of his peers, because he has a vision and God asks him, what can I give you as you start off your life as being king? And he said, you know what? I look at everything around here, but really what I want is just wisdom. I want to know how to rule in the best and fairest way that I possibly can. And God is pleased with his answer, of course. And yet he says, I will give you wisdom, but since you have asked for it, I'm also going to give you what you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you the wealth. I'm going to give you the success. I'm going to give you everything else. And this is what Solomon had. But at the end of his life, at Ecclesiastes 1, right at verse 1, the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And so that word teacher there, in Hebrew is koalet. And what it really means is a collector or a gatherer. That's the actual meaning. You know, when we get to these ancient words, what they mean and what they are expanded to include is so interesting because the idea here is a collector or a gatherer of words, of sentences, of wisdom, of ideas, so that this person can be a teacher, can be a preacher. In this case, it's Solomon, also king. 
the words of the teacher, son of David, David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Not a real good start, right? The word there in Hebrew is Hevel. And it literally means a breath or a vapor, something that's just here, and it's, it's ethereal. You don't really know if it's there, and then it's gone. So it came to, to mean vain, you know, in the sense of futile, meaningless, of no purpose or no profit, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. At verse 3, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Hang on to that question in the back of your minds. We'll get back to it. He writes, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, where there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear fill of its hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the people of old. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned this, too, is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. This is Solomon at the end of his life taking stock. Wow. This is a final Ecclesiastes moment for him that is breaking him through to full wisdom in his life. That everything that he has done amounts to nothing in the face of his imminent death. In the course of the book, he runs through every accomplishment that he's ever made. <laughs> It's, it's amazing to see him do this. Every accomplishment, pleasure. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, the, the legend is he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You think you got problems, right? <laughs> so pleasure, he's, he's run the gauntlet on that, right? Power had everything. Building. He's the one who built the temple, built the, the, the first temple. David was not allowed to. Too much blood on his hands. But Solomon builds this. He was doing building projects all over. Fabulous buildings. Wealth and land. And of course the wisdom that, that he had. You know. But then he realizes with all this amassed as he's growing old at the end of his life that all humans have the same end. And therefore all accomplishments can't matter. They don't matter. 
the wise, the foolish, the rich, the poor, the happy, the sad, the accomplished, the lazy, all die the same death. Sometimes evil appears to be rewarded. Good appears to be punished. What is happening here? It sounds brutal to just hear these words. Depressing, defeatist. You may be wondering, why is this even in the Bible? I mean, it just seems to be going right in the face of everything that we we know about God and know about Jesus and so on and so forth. Does anything matter at all? Well, see how the teacher is going to answer that question, but also the central question that he asks back at verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Take a look in the second chapter, starting at verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than taking meat and drink and having delight in his work. This again, I saw, was from the hand of God who may take food or have, for who may take food or have pleasure without him. Chapter 3, verse 12. I am certain that there is nothing better for a man than to be glad and to do good while life is in him, and for every man to take food and drink and have joy in all his work. It's a reward from God. Verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than for a man to have joy in his work, because that is his reward. Who will make him see what will come after him? Chapter 5, verse 18, this is what I have seen. It is good and fair for a man to take meat and drink and to have joy in all his work under the sun all the days of his life, which God has given him. That is his reward. Chapter 9, verse 4, for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Verse 7, come, take your bread with joy and your wine with a glad heart. God has taken pleasure in your works. Have joy with the woman of your love all the days of your foolish life, which he gives you under the sun, because that is your part in life and in your work, which you do under the sun. Whatever comes to your hand to do with all your power. And then the last two verses of the book at chapter 12. This is the last word. All has been said. Have fear of God and keep his laws, because this is right for every man. God will be judge of every work with every secret thing, good or evil. You see a pattern forming here? You see what Solomon is doing? He's answering his own question over and over. He does this in eight out of the twelve chapters. Answers this question over and over So that what seems initially like fatalism to us is really liberation. The liberation that only an ego and worldview shattering ecclesiastic moment can possibly deliver. To be able to be freed of the illusion of control that we hold on to with our accomplishments, to realize that in itself, accomplishment is havel. It's vain. It's worthless, meaningless. It has no profit, right? Because as long as we think that material accomplishment is meaningful, it's just like the sea, always flowing, but never full. Deep down, we all know that any accomplishment that we make 
ends at our headstones, right? And that's what keeps us fearful. Who are we without our accomplishments? Who are we without the thoughts that tell us who we think we are? When that ends, that's the scary thing. The teacher is redirecting us to the only meaning that we can find in life. That's this moment, this meal, this person we're with, the work that we're doing. It's all we have as human beings. And until we learn to cherish it, we have nothing. And deep down, we know it. And there's the rub. A while back, a friend of mine was having a really difficult time. And uh, he emailed me to tell me what was going on. And I emailed him back. And I want to just read a couple of paragraphs of that and see if this nails this down this morning. I wrote him, hang in, my friend. I can hear the fatigue and fatalism creeping in. Happens to all of us. But with all the loss you've gone through, don't give up. You have so much to give with all you have been through and all you've studied and know of our God. Keep giving it away. Find the joy again in the smallest things. I'm realizing that's really all we have, no matter who or where we are or how much we've attained or not attained. In the end, when we turn out the lights, it's just the little things. Either we see God in them or we don't, kingdom or not kingdom. I've spent so much time focusing on the wrong things, or better, focusing on things for the wrong reasons. Ultimately, I don't think it matters what we do. I don't think God cares what we do. It doesn't survive with us anyway. But God cares deeply how we do what we do, the manner, the love with which we do whatever we choose to do. As I enter the last phase of my life, the things unaccomplished were beginning to weigh on me. Sense of inadequacy, missed opportunity or mission, depression was hitting more often, pressure to turn things around somehow. Now some may look at me and wish they had a platform like mine to work within, and I can do the same thing looking at someone else. But none of that matters. I know this, but I still fight it as well. Emotionally, the fear is still there, but at lower levels. Now I just keep reminding myself of what Jesus was really telling us. This moment, this detail, this person I'm with is the most important bit in the universe. No other moment even exists until I'm in it. Who will remember us, any of us, past a generation or two? And if they remember us through writing or buildings or movies or whatever, they're not really remembering us. They're remembering products and images that we've produced. Not the same thing. Everything we are and we're created to be is momentary, like music. It vibrates in the air for a few moments and then is gone. If we can focus on the vibrations right now, always now, it changes us. I'm slowly changing, getting more comfortable with my circumstances, realizing my accomplishments or lack don't define me at all in the eyes of those who love me most, and especially the God who loves me all. 
See the Ecclesiastes moment? Is this ego shattering, worldview shattering epiphany that it's not what we do, it's who we are that matters. It's who we are that lets us know that we are the beloved of God. And that's what matters all. One such moment like this is not enough. We're going to need a series of them. And usually old age to kick in at the back end to whittle us down to just one moment, right? Because until our life comes down to just one continuous moment, we won't be free. We won't really know who we are. Now the irony is, is that it's the meaninglessness of life. As we look around and we see the things that happen that we can't comprehend, the craziness, the thoughtlessness, the evil, and the great things and the good things too. But the meaninglessness of life is what ultimately leads us to true meaning. In those last two verses of his book, Solomon says to fear God and keep his laws, keep his commandments. Why would he say that? At the end of all of this vanity, right? At the end of all of this meaninglessness. Isn't this just more meaninglessness? Isn't this just more accomplishment? But if you think of what the fear of God really is, it changes everything. It's not about being afraid of God. Fear of God really is silent reverence, radical amazement, and affectionate awe. Silent reverence, radical amazement, affectionate awe. To be in that state, huh? to see life that way, takes us to the place of gratitude, of hope and trust. That perfectly describes Francis of Assisi, perfectly describes Emery Tang, perfectly describes two nuns in Catholicism somewhere. And it absolutely describes Jesus. Grateful, hopeful, trusting. The question is, does it describe you? Does it describe me? Well, if you're thinking maybe not quite yet, stone not yet smooth, not to worry. Your ecclesiastic moment is on the way. <laughs> there is always another one coming around the corner, and you can count on it. But if you think on it, if you think about what we're talking about here, if you start to get your mind in that space, if you can mentally prepare for it, it won't have to be so hard to accept when it does arrive. You can see it for what it is, and you can let it do its work without resisting it so strongly that it tears you apart. But to have that epiphany and to realize more and more that our God is eternally momentary. Eternally momentary. Because in this moment is the only place we will ever, ever meet. And our accomplishments and our fears take us out. Jesus is trying to bring us back. Let's pray. Father, we're looking for new appreciation of the moment, this moment we're having right now. 
we're looking for ways to become more and more who we really are, to find that integrated space where everything comes together and we become someone who is a catalyst for change. Whether we do anything or not to create that change. Help us to find that space before we turn our attention outward to whatever we're trying to do so that our accomplishments, our doings can be infused with that how of your love, connection, vulnerability. We want to be those people who are creating a sense of calm in the midst of a storm, who is someone that others can lean on and that we're never too proud to lean on them when the time comes. Help us to become that. Help us to value that. Help us to continue to aid in the process of whittling away that fear that drives us to keep doing things at the expense of just being who you created us to be. Again, Father, thank you for all the tools that you give us. Thank you for each other to help along the way. And never let us forget that we can only love because you loved first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.